You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Tad Williams is the creator of the classic fantasy trilogy Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, the Two Green Angel Tower novels Siege and Storm, the Otherland and Shadow March series, and the novels The War of Flowers and Kelvin's Hour. His first Bobby Dollar book was The Dirty Streets of Heaven. His new Bobby Dollar novel is Happy Hour in Hell. Thank you for joining me, Tad. Thanks, as always, for having me. You are having so much fun writing these books, and it's apparent with every word on the page. And and the thing that happens with that is that the readers have fun, too, when you're having fun. I I certainly hope that's true, because that's always been my philosophy. Um, Oftentimes, I talk to people who are working on becoming writers or working on becoming published writers, and uh, one of the things I've always said is, you know, it's really important to write something that you really enjoy writing because then even if you don't sell it, you haven't spent your time doing something that would depress you, <laughs> you know, and you've learned something. But for a working writer, I think it's even more important because, you know, you have to, you the only person, the only audience you can really trust, I think, is yourself um, in the sense of having constant access to it, you know, and saying, is this working? Is that working? So if you're trying to write to an imaginary market that you're not that into, or if you're trying to write to an imaginary readers that you don't actually know, it can get very fuzzy, you know, whereas if you're writing something and you can say, would I like this? You know, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, you can usually say, yes, I would, or God, no, this is crap. I better start over again. So I'm glad to hear that that readers are also enjoying them. That's obviously the ultimate hope. I'm not writing just for me, but I'm using myself as a yardstick. Well, one of the things I think that's so interesting about this is the theology uh, behind all this that's slowly coming out. We have Bobby Dollar, he's an angel, but from the very beginning, this is not an angel like every other angel we've ever seen. He uh, he's a, has the persona of a private eye, but as he's investigating heaven, we as readers are also investigating Bobby, and I think that's an interesting uh paradox for us as readers. Well, that's nicely put. Uh, Yeah, one of the things about him as a character is that he, to himself, before he became an angel, his life is pretty much a blank slate. So he doesn't know what happened before that. And that's true of most of the other angels, although paradoxically, it's not true of the demons that he encounters. But I guess if I have a, a, one of the hopes that I have for these books, besides just that people will enjoy them, is that over time, I'm, I'm trying to write them in such a way that many different interpretations are available as to what the actual structure of this universe is, what the actual metaphysical reality of it is. And, you know, is it a, a traditional Judeo-Christian version of the afterlife? Is it, you know, some kind of weird psychological experiment? <laughs> is it aliens? You know, I mean, what's going on? Simply because that, for me, is part of what's interesting about it anyway. I don't have a dogma to deliver. I don't have a particular message that I want to give people about how the universe really works because I'm in it. And it's like asking fish about water, you know. I don't pretend to have the answers. But I, I would like it. I would enjoy it very much, actually, if people argued vociferously about what's, you know, what's really going on in the Bobby Dollar universe. 
one of the things I think that makes this so interesting are the way that you've uh, created the the characters and you created some real, uh, I think, challenges for yourself because you have characters who are, and when we first encounter them, uh, incomprehensible to us and to Bobby. Yeah, I, I certainly try to, and that's one of the things that is also interesting to me about this is that, in a sense, um, I mentioned kind of like, oh, you know, is it aliens, you know, or is it really God, or, you know, whatever that is. I guess part of the reason I, I can say things like that is because I try to do these things almost as if they were science fiction in the sense that I, I try to decide how could you build a system like this that would really work? How could you build a system that would account for our way of thinking about the afterlife and the Judeo-Christian tenets we all grew up with, you know, streets of heaven, angels, etc., and yet still make it work, make it functional? And, of course, by the very nature of this story, it's about a guy who's kind of a mid-level minion of heaven. And so, you know, the actual whys and wherefores are one of the strangest and I hope most interesting things about it, how it all actually functions, what happens to souls after they die, who's in charge, how is, you know, discipline maintained and all that. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. And I, and I always, I do the same thing with my other fantasy works as well. Even if I'm writing about an imaginary Middle Ages, I try to make it very gritty. I like to know how things really work. So I'm having great fun with that and with the characters as well. And where that ties into what you were asking or saying is that I try to make, I try to remember that these are characters, some of them who are literally immortal or as close to it as we can imagine, you know, and how does a, you know, an immortal demon or angel deal with things and look at the universe differently than somebody like us who has a limited amount of time. And even the main character, although he's an angel, he only remembers about 20 years. So he's had a limited amount of, of framework to, to, to base you know, his dealings with the universe on, whereas we're also dealing with immortals. So I kind of like to take all of those things and, and make the unreal as real as possible. I love the gritty feel for this, and part of this comes for, at least we'll talk a little bit about the first book now, uh, your feeling for Northern California, and I love the, the way that you've created Northern California, but you've got your own little pocket of Northern California, so tell us about uh, uh, San Judas. Well, it is, for those outside of the San Francisco Bay Area or who haven't visited here, it's, it's an imaginary city. Uh, it's, it seems to me that one of the, the keynotes of most noir, or at least most good noir, which the Bobby Dollar books kind of are in a way, is that it's essentially an urban fiction, you know, that, that detective stories, especially those kind of lone private eye stories, tend to take place in an urban setting because there's um, anonymity, there's sheer numbers, there's places to hide, there's strange little backwaters that other people don't know about where you can be, you know, half a mile away and in another world. There's all these kinds of things. And also the, the confluence of many different kinds of peoples and cultures. All these things make noir. So when I wanted to do a noir angel, I wanted to have that kind of setting. But the other thing is, is that in most really great noir series or you know write, writings, the, the city itself is a character. And I didn't feel that I knew any cities, now that I haven't lived in London for 20 years, I didn't feel like I knew any cities well enough to, to write about them in a day-to-day -day sense. And I'm a suburban kid. I grew up in the suburb in the suburbs of you know the the San Francisco Bay Area West Bay, you know, near Stanford University. 
that's my home turf, but it's very suburban. So I said, well, why don't I just sort of, you know, we've got a few cities in the Bay Area. Why don't I just kind of quietly and with no malice obliterate San Jose <laughs> and sort of drag that population center up to the area where I grew up and make a city out of it. And that way it will also give me a little distance where I can make the city even stranger and more interesting than any real city could be, or at least I try to. So that was kind of the, the roots of it. But then at a certain point, it also becomes a game. You know, it's fun to take things that you grew up with and give them alternate histories. I've made Stanford University very dark and gothic, and it reappears in the third volume, by the way. And there's more Stanford stuff, and you find out even more weird things about, you know, whereas Stanford University, you know, I grew up with it. It was fairly un uncontroversial. So I've kind of enjoyed that as well, the chance to, to literally invent a, a, a city and its history. And not just the city and the streets, but, you know, what actually happened there and how it became the place that it is. And lastly, uh, San Judas is named not after Judas Iscariot, who, who uh, you know, uh, betrayed Christ in all the Christian uh, stories, but after St. Jude, who is the patron saint of hopeless causes and a, a saint I've always held in reverence. Um, and uh, so he seemed to me to be appropriate. And so then I also was kind of acquiring the San Jose, which starts with a J for those who don't know Spanish, and San Judas. You know, there was, I was kind of not entirely burying San Jose. I was still giving it a little bit of a, you know, based around a mission city, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a number of reasons why I've been enjoying doing this. It's a little bit of world building in this world. It is, and it's also, for those who know the area at all, there's a lot of little kind of jokes and things. You know, there's some things that are just moments of recognition, but there's also things, you know, going like, oh, that's what he's imagining it would change into if it was a big city. Oh, that's pretty funny, or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, no, those are a lot of fun. And one of the things, too, I was thinking, you have a lot of fun with your people, especially there's a certain... Uh, bad fellow in, in, in the first book, and he's uh, back in the second. And he's reminiscent to me of a, of a software magnate who is, I think, best known for driving his car at 120 miles an hour <laughs> Wait, and then just getting out and leaving his lawyer to deal with them. <laughs> well, he's definitely, he's not specifically based on anybody, but he is, he definitely has that kind of character, that kind of, uh, in his case, he has the excuse of being, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old and literally not giving a damn about anybody or anything. But there's very much uh, for me that villains are always fun to write. They're always fun to write. And Plus, I have the very real thing. I mean, you know, always in, not always, but in many, many situations, you're writing about essentially a human being who may be wretched and rotten and evil and all those things, but they're still functionally a human being, and therefore there are limits. They're not going to live forever. They, you know, are capable of being brought to mortal justice, et cetera, et cetera. And in, in some of the main uh, antagonists in these books are literally immortal. They are not going to get punished. They are not going to ever be somebody that the main character is going to be able to arrest or take off the jail or something like that. So it also adds a kind of whole a kind of a realistic twist to this, because most of us can't deal with the, the ugliest forces in our lives. M most of us cannot go out and arrest the government or arrest the church or whoever it is that we feel is oppressing us, and you have to find other ways to deal with it, which is also very noir. Um, noir is almost never apocalyptic. 
noir is almost never like a lot of fantasy books are about you know uh, saving the world. It's usually about you know saving your own soul and one little corner and hoping to keep some idealism left after you've exposed all the dirty secrets. So that very much is also in play with the bad guys in this is that they are uh, genuinely quite powerful and, and quite scary in most cases. You know, uh, one of the things that I think you do really well in, in this book is that despite the fact that you have a, a setup that's very much a Judeo-Christian setup, at least on first uh, appearance, you steer clear of that kind of uh, theological um, trap but yet you manage to have a lot of theological thought. And that, that's, that's an interesting ability to get one without getting stuck in the other. How'd you avoid that tar well, I, baby? I, I'm, I'm glad that works for you that way. Uh, well, again, kind of hearkening back to what I said earlier, when I say I kind of approach this like science fiction, I don't mean that you know, for those who don't know the books, I don't mean that the answers to everything is going to be a science fiction answer of some kind. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I try to make it functional. I try to figure out, you know, if there was a group of beings who were over, you know, watching over our afterlife and had enough information on us to judge us all and, and either lift us up to heaven or condemn us to hell, and there was, in fact, the gigantic machineries of heaven and hell in existence, et cetera, et cetera, my interest is literally how would it work? You know, I mean, what are the levers? What are the switches? How does it, you know, what's the fuel? What's the, you know, as I said before, how do they keep people in line? You know, I'm really interested in that science fictional world building sense. So as far as the theology goes, honestly, I have no no uh, kick with anybody's theologies. I, 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 I find some of them more dubious than others, but I, I don't really care about theologies except as questions of philosophy, questions of human nature, questions uh, about how the universe works. Those are fascinating to me. So I don't have an ax to grind. Um, and in fact, in the third book, which you haven't read yet, obviously, because it's not finished, but in the third book, uh, very early in the story, Bobby is um, sent out to be an advocate for somebody who has just died, who happens to be a guy who died in a freeway accident. And the guy whose spirit, his soul, is stumbling around near this crash site, you know, Bobby shows up and says, basically, hi, I'm an angel, and I'm here to be your advocate at judgment. And this guy's soul says, uh, but I'm not Christian. He's actually uh, Indian-American, uh, Indo-American, I guess you'd say, from the Indian subcontinent uh, by heritage. And Bobby says, well, he says, I'm not a Christian. And Bobby says, I'm not a Christian angel, which is not me saying you know, that it's anti-Christian or that Christian theology is off the table. What he's saying is what I am and how this works is much more basic than these doctrinal issues. So that's the only thing that kind of I'm telling the readers for certain is that, you know, in this universe, the heaven, the hell, all of that stuff is not explicitly Christian or Calvinist or Buddhist or, you know, anything. It just is. It is what it is, and we will find out more as we go along. But don't think it's, you know, one specific thing and that you can say, oh, but see, the, you know, the Catholics don't believe that or that, you know, it's like I'm going, we're, be, you know, we're more basic than that here. We're just talking about an imaginary afterlife and how it might work. And how it might allow you as a writer 
to write even more kind of head-spinning mysteries. And that's one of the things I think where you have a lot of fun in the first book and in the second book. Uh, let's talk a little bit, just a bit about the mystery in the first book. I don't want to say what it is or what's happening, right. but you have a lot of fun using your otherworldly universe as a source of mystery. And I think that makes it so much fun to read. Well, and again, that's the idea is that that Bobby himself is literally earthbound, although he does go to heaven. And as I don't think it's giving away too much in the second book, um, he actually does go to hell in the second book. So these places exist and are visited, but Bobby himself is very much a creature of earth. He doesn't remember much of anything before he became an angel. He lives on Earth in an earthly body with earthly urges, earthly needs, including food, drink, and uh, companionship of, of other beings. And as a result, he's, he's much more focused on that, and the books are much more focused on that sort of human viewpoint, even though he is an angel. His viewpoint is very human, rather sarcastically human, but very human. Um, so heaven and hell are seen kind of as these extreme places that are quite strange and other, and which for me works. I want to, as the series goes along, I hope to reveal more of all of these things, but I will probably never take the mystery away because then at a certain point, once you've shown everybody everything, once I've answered all my own questions even, it's not going to have the same depth. It doesn't have that same, you know, kind of that stereoscopic feeling like those little Easter eggs with the scenes inside, you know, where it goes off into the distance and there's layers, you know. That's what I'm looking for is heaven and hell will always have to remain somewhat mysterious because otherwise it just, you know, it becomes too small. You know, uh, I you do also have uh, Bobby has friends. He also has an interest in the other sex. And you have a great deal of fun with the Countess of Cold Hands. Tell us about creating that character. Well, the the thing that was interesting about her is, um, and this does not usually happen with me, although I can be a very intuitive writer, she is one of those characters who literally sort of just popped into my mind so quickly and with so little thinking about first that I can't exactly tell you where she came about. Although, and I, I don't want people to misunderstand this. This is in no way autobiographical or in, in anything like that. However, when I met my wife, Deborah, it was very much a, um, you know, just a, a, like in The Godfather, they say, you know, oh, he got hit by the thunderbolt. You know, he's been hit by the thunderbolt. It's true love for sight, you know. And it was very much like that for me with Deb. So a lot of the shock of the collision of these two people in their very different lives and the overwhelmingness of the, the, the feelings and the need for that other person, that does come from something. And it's kind of funny because one of the comments I often hear from people um, about it, that one of the only kind of uh, slightly, well, I don't want to say that it's a critical comment, but you know, I will hear people say, it's like, I'm not, how can, why is he so certain? you know, that, that this is real and it's these feelings for her are not some kind of uh, demonic uh, spell or something like that. And I realized, you know, okay, not everybody has had this experience the way I have. No, not everybody has met somebody and just realized, kaboom, they are the one, you know, and this is the rest of my life I'm looking at. So, you know, in, in subsequent volumes, I, I, and actually I addressed it a little bit in the third book, um, him explaining why he feels the way he does and why he's quite certain about her. But again, even Bobby can be wrong about something. So don't 
don't think I've, you know, I've sealed off every possible avenue in terms of him learning that he's wrong about some things. But, but very much that was, so, so for me, she kind of popped into being as a character without me knowing who she was, but me knowing what she was, you know, how she came off and what her presence was and what kind of a backstory she had, although I didn't know the story yet until I sat down to write it, um, which comes up in the first book. But very much that feeling of encountering somebody that just immediately changes your life, that I knew, and that felt very familiar to me. So I hasten to say I don't want people reading through this and think I'm describing my own you know, love life or my marriage or anything like that. I'm not. But it has that powerful reality to me that you can be in the situation where you meet somebody and it just changes everything. And that's what Bobby's dealing with. Of course, his problem is that the person that he's met is not just like in my wife's case, happened to be English instead of American like me, but she actually happens to be uh, a working employee of hell, which is, you know, a larger gap than, than some mixed couples have to overcome. <laughs> so, but that also is going to be, and, and, and I hope in the long run, I don't want to give anything away, but if I get to continue their relationship in the long run, I think that the differences between them will begin to show up more at a later point in their relationship. And I think that will be very interesting as well, because she's had a completely different life and experience than him in every possible way. It's uh, beyond Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, she literally, you know, was burned at the stake. Um, and I won't give away any more of the her origin than that. But I mean, uh, you know, she she has a very different experience of life than many people do. <laughs> you know, uh, the in the second book, Bobby does end up going to hell for various reasons, and one of the reasons is an absolutely delightful plot arc for one of your uh, eternal incomprehensible angels. And I thought that was so much fun. Talk a little bit about like as bringing some of these guys to ground a little bit. Well, I assume you're, you're talking about his sort of uh, one of his superiors. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, and well, again, what's, what's interesting to me is not eternity, but where eternity intersects with every day. What's interesting to me is not heaven, Although it is, heaven is the hardest thing to envision, I have to say, from a fiction writing point of view. And, and that's been true throughout religious history as well. Many more people have had useful and interesting visions of hell than have had useful and interesting visions of heaven. And anybody who's read the Paradiso as well as the Inferno can tell you which is the much more interesting poem as well. Um, but, you know, so in, in this particular case, you know, he's, he's dealing with somebody who is literally not entirely knowable. He's dealing with an angel who is further up the ladder than him. The ladder itself is very murky. What's above um, th this angel and a few other steps up is completely invisible to Bobby. You know, he doesn't even know, you know, as he says in the very first book, no, I've never met God. I have no idea. You know, I mean, so, but even dealing with his kind of superiors who are kind of the equivalent of supervisors or managers, there's so many elements of mystery and things that he doesn't understand and that are kept from him or that he is not allowed to even ask about that it, it, that's the part that interests me is where 
the, the mystery interacts with the need for real information. And that's, I think, where most of us find a lot of interest in things, is where the stuff we don't know comes into contact with the daily life that we know very well. And I think specifically that's, you know, that's kind of religion in a nutshell. It's, it's you know, where eternity comes, bangs up into everyday life, and you have to try and reconcile the two. So the character, like the one that you're referring to, who is, is Temuel, is the character's name, is uh, kind of almost a living embodiment of that, of that some things are just going to remain frustratingly unknowable, even while you think you're getting glimpses of what's really going on, then suddenly it changes a little bit and you realize you only saw one facet, and it's more complicated than that. And this is going to be even more true in the third volume, by the way. Uh, you talked a little bit about heaven, and I have to say that um, your visions of heaven are really uh, pretty damn interesting. I, I'm really enjoying them, and I think you're doing a great job. And I have, to my mind, I think that you benefit that, unlike a Virgil, you benefit from a history of the past 50 years of science fiction. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Stanislaw Lamb, those guys, I think, tread the way for you to give at least a good, an entertaining vision of heaven. Well, it's one of the things that I've always loved about fantasy and science fiction in general. And when people ask me, why did you start writing in that field? Because I've always loved it, but I write other kinds and certainly re always read other kinds of stuff as well. But one of the things I love about science fiction and fantasy is that there's a constant attempt to, to explain the, the inexplicable, to, to give some tactile reality to the ineffable. You know, fantasy and science fiction are oftentimes about describing things nobody's ever seen and that things that people have only ever imagined and, as I was saying with the world building, trying to put them into concrete terms. Um, one of the reasons that people, so many people fell in love with The Lord of the Rings in my generation was because it wasn't just uh, an attempt to write an adventure story or to have good rewarded and evil punished, but Tolkien was making a real attempt to, to display and, and, and illustrate some of the things he felt about the fallen nature of humankind and that a better world was possible. Now, in his mind, it was probably not very possible because it was all in the past, but it was still this idea of him trying to show something that was greater than our everyday reality, something that was bigger and more awesome. And that includes his villains as well, but, but also things like Lothlorien and Rivendell and the tales of the, the elven civilizations of old. They're very much an attempt to take impossible generalities and, and imaginary things and, and make them real, make them tangible. So when I'm playing with heaven, the first thing I'm having to deal with is, you know, how do you make something feel realistic that is almost impossible to describe, you know, in, in any kind of coherent way? Because first of all, you're talking about eternity, something that lasts forever. Almost any of us can imagine being deliriously happy and taking one of the, you know, the happiest 20 seconds of our lives and being told, and that's your reward in heaven. You're going to feel like that all the time until someone says to you, and you're going to feel that way for millions and millions and millions of years, and it's never going to change. And all of a sudden, I think most sensible people start to go, hang on, that was a, a reward or a punishment, you know, so... Just the nature of trying to take something like heaven and figure out how can I put together a heaven that is mysterious and interesting, that works in its functional sense, but not 
so obviously that there's no questions or interest in it, and yet also show for somebody who's bound in time like I am how nervous the idea of eternity makes me feel. All of those things are in play when I'm trying to create, you know, the illusion of heaven in these books. And uh, you talk a little bit about eternity. Uh, you This gets us to... Origin, spelled O-R-I-G-E-N, and it was all probably originally Origines or something, um, was a, uh, a, a scholar and philosopher um, in the early part of the Christian era. And it comes up in the second volume that certain people in a, in a kind of an unexpected place have built a cult around some of the ideal ideas of origin or Oregon. And Oregon, or Origen, however you want to pronounce it, he, who is, a, I believe, an Alexandrian, and as I said, he was early Christian, he, among other things, he had many much more kind of uh, mainstream ideas of, at, at the time, but one of the things that he believed and, and wrote about was the idea that if God is truly merciful, and if there is any point to God having mercy, essentially, there is no such thing as eternal damnation. It, you couldn't have it, right? Because God couldn't be all merciful if he could actually say, and nothing you do will ever get you back in my good graces. So this particular philosopher said, even Satan, you know, again, within the Christian theology, even Satan must be salvageable, right? That Every single being that has ever fallen out of God's mercy has to have a way to work themselves back into God's mercy again. Now, this is interesting mostly because it was kind of stomped on very quickly by the Christian church, who did not want to have any back doors out of, out of hell. You know, they really, you know, they were much more concerned about orthodoxy and things like that. And they, had, they hadn't even entirely established their orthodoxies yet. So... But it's an interesting idea to me, and it's also, it resonates personally for me. So I, I grabbed a hold of this idea that even hell must be something that can be, that, that you can earn your way out of it somehow, no matter how bad you are and how bad what you've done and how much you've offended God. And so that becomes a, a subject about which not only some characters in hell think about very deeply, but Bobby himself begins to think about as well, because he, again, is stuck face to face with not just the concept of people being tortured for their misdeeds, but people literally being tortured indefinitely, eternally for something that maybe they did once, you know, or, you know, a moment's madness and cruelty, and yet literally billions of years of, of penalty for it or whatever. So that's something that he runs up into, and the whole concept of, of whether, you know, there is such a thing as somebody beyond salvation becomes uh, at least an important thing for him to think about. Um, he's developing during these books, so it's not all going to happen at once, and I'd like to keep writing them. So, um, what we're seeing is, is him develop as a character and as a thinking uh, being um, during the books and, and not simply finding out the true answers that I, the author, have laid out for him to discover. Um, because I don't actually have any dogmatic opinions myself I'm trying to put forward. I'm, I'm, I, I tend to be a believer on the, on the side of, of mercy and kindness. Um, but uh, I don't have a dogma. I'm not trying to tell readers, this is what the real heaven is like, not by any means. I'm trying to create an interesting story that makes people think. 
And that's one of the things I think that's so much fun about these books is that they really do have the sense of an open-ended character arc. And we get the feeling that there are machinations in heaven and in hell and that they're maybe not so different between not a lot of difference between the two. <laughs> well, I think that there's, and again, I'm a you know as I actually once taught a college course about the fact that that my my idea it's not unique to me that pretty much all science fiction um, and fantasy you know is uh, a reflection of the time it's written, which is particularly you know uh, ironic with science fiction because it purports to be saying this is what the future may be like, and it's really always about this is what the present makes me think a future might be like. But in the same way, you know, I'm doing the same things with these stories. I'm trying to deal with these ideas that interest and fascinate me without making them be the be-all and end-all. Because, again, I don't have a point. I am not L. Ron Hubbard. I'm not trying to sell anybody a religion. You know, I'm not even Robert Heinlein, and I'm positive that I'm right about everything, and I'm just trying to make sure you understand that I'm right about everything. I am a questioner by nature. And I am also a kind of humble questioner, I think, by nature, in that I don't believe that everything is obvious and people are idiots if they don't agree with me. So what I'm trying to do in these books is just that. I'm trying to, to show people why those questions interest me, but do it in a way that it's part of, you know, an enjoyable book, um, interesting characters, you know, some scares, some laughs, you know, stuff like that. That's my idea anyway. Your new novel, The Happy Hour in Hell, it does take place in hell, and you have as much fun or more fun with hell than you have with heaven. Uh, I have to say thank you for the many, many wonderful monsters you create. <laughs> I just love the hell out of all those monsters. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if one should admit to having had fun, uh, literally torturing thousands and thousands of people in one's main character. Again, I mean, that's what's interesting about this stuff is, is dealing with things that we've all sort of been raised on, part of our Western culture, you know, these ideas, these theological ideas, trying to make them real. And I'll be honest, and also being me and the main character being kind of reflective of some things about me, having fun with it as well. I mean, seeing the strange and the grotesque and the ironic and, you know, I mean, I... I Definitely was always kind of like, you know, a lover of uh, Lawrence Stern or, or Henry Fielding or Dickens. I love grotesques. I love the strange and the unusual. I love it when the circus comes to town. You know, it's the same thing that, that uh, fired me up on Bradley, uh, Bradley, sorry, Ray Bradbury and H.P. Lovecraft. I was trying to combine two names there. Bradbury and Lovecraft when I was young. I love that kind of grand guignol thing about how crazy can you make it. And also, let's face it, when you're, when you're writing about hell, um, our field anyway, science fiction fantasy, is already, you know, I mean, we're overrun with horror tropes and vampires and zombies and all these things that have been so big, especially the last 10 years. So you're already dealing with a, with a fairly jaded audience. And if you just try, you know, and also people who've been watching splatter punk movies and, you know, horror porn and, you know, all that kind of grisly stuff. So... I don't particularly think there's any real value in trying to out-splatter them or just trying to out-violence or out-nauseate them. I mean, that's already been done. Um, and that, to its, in and of itself, is not that interesting to me. But if you can find ways to make things psychologically horrifying, that's always worked much better on me. And the thing about working with the psychological horror of hell is that almost inevitably it's going to be 
you know, the fact that it is a, a twisting and a perversion of things that in the real world we take for granted will work a certain way, you know. And hell, almost by its nature, is, is oftentimes is made as a kind of a twisted uh, warning about the, the world we live in now. And, and you know, and, and of course, in the old days, for many people, it was literally saying, you know, you think the world you're living in now is difficult. Boy, just wait till you get caught for all your sins, and then you go to hell. It's going to be a million times worse. But because it is kind of a dark reflection of society in almost all cases, um, there's also huge scope for satire and, and for making fun of the world that we live in. And there's very much elements of the hell in my book because Bobby does travel fairly extensively. He's not there for the whole book, but he's there for a good chunk of it. And he travels fairly extensively and sees a lot of it. So there are a lot of kind of very dark, sardonic versions of the real world reflected in this hellish environment. And, and that's, you know... I mean, horror for me, horror and the horse laugh kind of go, go together. They're hand in hand most of the time, you know, because our first response to many horrible things is to kind of laugh in disbelief um, if they're not happening to us personally, you know. But I mean, when we hear about them or see about them or read about them um, and that those two impulses are kind of coupled. And I think one of the ways that people cope with horror also, obviously, is by sort of laughing and trying to, to diminish it. Um, in its in its fearfulness, so writing about hell for me was very much about trying to couple these really horrible psychological ideas and concepts um, for a readership that has grown up, you know, with knowledge of the the Holocaust and the My Lai massacre and all kinds of things. To couple the the physical horror of it with the kind of the the psychological side, and then also to kind of the dark humor of what human beings can do to each other and imagine doing to each other. So it's really, you know, anything that extreme is always a really interesting writing exercise, just trying to imagine something that extreme and, and, and then put it across to other people in a way that it will work for them too. And they'll go, oh my God, you know, that's what you're hoping for. And that means surprise. And so you have to find weird angles to hit things at. And it's great fun, I have to say. I, I, you used a lot of really interesting kind of surrealist uh, aspects here. And I'm, what, what I was wondering, though, is that this novel has to have like a series of, it gets, starts out bad, gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, worse till you get this kind of peak. And I'm wondering, did you have to one-up yourself up the slope or did you like imagine the peak and then work your way down? Well, it's, all, it's hard to give a single answer to that um, because it's usually a combination for me in that some scenes, when I'm first contemplating a, a, a book, some scenes will come to me quite early, and if I really like them, I'll go, okay, I have to find a way to make that happen, you know? Um, and certainly that, that has happened in, in, in the Bobby Dollar books, that I've thought of things ahead of time and said, ooh, got to work that in. But then there have been, uh, for instance, the without going into any details, the fact that Bobby finally winds up essentially in the power of the main antagonist, um, and that we finally get to a point where Bobby can't trick his way out of things anymore, which has happened several times in the first book and even in the second book, that he's kind of bluffed his way or fought his way out of situations, and he has never been in this character's ultimate power in any sense before, this terrible, terrible archdemon. But in the second book, I said, somewhere in this book, if this is hell, he has got to literally be helpless in hell. That's, you know, there's otherwise I'm 
You know, I, I can have my character get away with all kinds of crazy James Bond escapes at other times. But if I do have him do that in hell and get away scot-free, then I have essentially cheated the reader because by the very nature of taking them to hell, I've said you're going to see things here that you haven't seen before in the story. So, so that idea, for instance, occurred to me early on, and I said that's going to have to be in there somewhere. But also I kind of – other things I've – they, they come up out of the, the, the complexity of making a story. They come up out of the situations. They come up out of the characters. Um, and many things I don't even think about until I, got, I get into the stories at all. Um, and, and so there is no single answer. But some things, yeah. Uh, and it, it helps if I have a few high points or low points, depending on how you want to look at them, for the character that I know I'm going to get to, because then that helps to give me shape when I'm first considering how the story might work. I was thinking, reading this, and I was thinking this something of a inversion of uh, Dante's Inferno. In some ways, was that deliberate? Did you plan that, or did you? There are certainly elements of Dante. Dante is one of the, I mean, for instance, I know the Inferno a lot better um, than I know Milton and Paradise Lost, for instance. I mean, I've read Paradise Lost all the way through once and, and bits of it many times. But I've actually read Dante in translation, I hasten to say, um, you know, more than once. I've read, you know, three, four times I've read Dante's Inferno. Um, interestingly enough, I've only read the Paradiso once because it's boring. But anyway, um, <laughs> but so there are elements, and, and as, as you know from reading the book, there are direct references to Dante, and there are some Dante-esque aspects to hell itself in the sense of sort of a, the physical idea. Although in this case, it's rather reversed in that, well, it's not entirely, it's hard to explain. Um, there's both an up up to down part to it and a down to up part to the physical reality of hell that's too hard to explain right now but yes there are influences but there was not i didn't want to take anything so directly that it became the dominant way of people looking at it and going oh you know like for instance uh larry niven and jerry pornell i believe did a book called inferno which was kind of a science fiction version of Dante's Inferno and that was explicitly based on Dante and it was a good book but I don't didn't want to do that I wanted my hell to be kind of like everything else this is my version and it works in my universe and it, it explains why my universe is the way it is but it's not necessarily like anybody else's you know <clears throat> one of the things that I thought you did really well was to uh, manage it to when you're writing a book called Happy Hour in Hell that takes place largely in hell to put scenes that are actually touching in hell, <laughs> that's really, that is the product of a truly warped mind. That's double warped back in on itself. Well, it, it actually, it's interestingly because, interesting because one of the sort of, one of the many sub-themes in the book is that one of the reasons hell is such an awful place, and I think, in fact, um, his, his girlfriend says this to him at one point, one of the reasons hell is such an awful place is because they know that if you do the same things to people continuously, they get used to it. So one of the things about hell is that they keep changing things. You know, it's like you do this for a while and then all of a sudden they lighten up on you a little bit just long enough for you to remember what it was like for it to not be unrelentingly horrible every second of every day. And then as soon as you're beginning to remember again, maybe that it, things were a little better, then they start over again, you know, or they do something different to you that you haven't been inured to. So in, I'm trying to do that to the readers as well because I'm trying exactly. to give yeah. I'm trying to give them that feeling, and 
you know, if you give somebody unremitting bleakness or unremitting horror, then at a certain point, it, there's no longer contrast. It doesn't have the effect. But if you remind them every now and then what it is that they're, they can't get to, what they're, what, you know, they're, what they're separated from, which is normality or kindness or whatever, then those things become even, the, the lack of those things becomes more horrible. But also it just helps people to read the books if it's not one tone throughout the thing. If every now and then they feel a connection or a moment of happiness or more likely what I try to use is, is sort of black humor, you know, that they have a laugh and, and that in a way kind of makes it like so you can go on through these horrible horrible things because there are tons of horrible things that happen in the book I mean there just are but for me I've always learned you have to leaven that with a, a little bit of other stuff so that it doesn't become just a boring slog yeah there's a great paragraph in here where you describe the smell in hell and I as I was reading that paragraph I was thinking he's describing hell but he's also describing his own writerly technique for putting the book together <laughs> yeah that's absolutely right yes that's the first time that that concept really comes up in the book and then it's reiterated a couple of times as bobby figures it out that that and then when kaz says it to him near the end of the book when they're alone together and she says basically don't you understand that's how hell works you know it evolves it changes it you know so yeah that is absolutely both me and hell we're, we're both equally uh, interested in, 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 in leavening your misery with just a little bit of other stuff every now and then to make the misery even better when, when we return to it. Uh, I like all the helpers throughout this book, whether it's Foxy or G-Man, who's, who's really a hoot in the first book and shows up in the second as well, or, or Gob and Rip Rash and Broken Boy, the Solly Hull sisters. These are all really great kind of classic detective characters twisted and warped in your own peculiar manner. Well, again, there's, I mean, anybody who knows my work knows that I love characters and I love supporting characters. And if anything, I am sometimes so attached to my supporting characters that I feel compelled to finish their storylines as well, you know? So I don't have not only all these main characters in my really big stories, um, you know, my multi-volume things, um, unlike Bobby Dollar. But um, then I have all these sub-subordinate sub characters, and all of them have to have story arcs too. And you need to find out how things end for them, and blah blah blah. I'm doing something just ever so slightly different in the Bobby Dollar books, and um, that is that because I'm considering this at this point as an open-ended thing with no ending planned. Um, I don't have any ideas about the arcs necessarily of these characters. Those will develop, these minor characters, these will develop over time. But what I am very much interested in doing is making the world itself, and that includes definitely all of Bobby's familiar supporting characters, his friends, his associates, his informers, his, his adversaries, his pains in the neck, um, have enough reality that that they can drift in and out of the larger stories without you know without people going who the hell's that you know if they've read another book they'll probably have bumped into that character at least briefly um i mean almost like uh what is it the uh the 87th precinct stuff mm -hmm. you know the, the ed baines yeah, yeah 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 i mean i i want those supporting characters to be capable of carrying the story themselves they won't but i want them to feel like that like they're real you know, and that they exist and they're part of Bobby's world. Um, 
because that's another way, again, over, I'm trying to think long-term with these and I want people to become involved in the world and not just in the main character. And I want them to be like, yeah, not only do I want to find out what happens to Bobby, but I'm really interested to hearing, you know, what really did happen to the Solly Hall sisters? Why are they ghosts? Why aren't they in hell or in heaven? You know, why are they haunting coffee shops? You know, that kind of thing. I want that to become part of the story background that people are interested in as well. All the great concepts, all the great characters, all the great plot lines that are really wonderful but really knocks it out of the park with these books is the prose. Every sentence is a pleasure to read that's really funny. They're sweet when they need to be. They're exciting when they need to be. Their action scenes are blocked. I'm wondering, how, especially the kind of the private eye jokes that are just, I mean, this is, you're just doing a fantastic job with this. It's hilarious. They're Thank really you. funny. Um, is this Does this flow off the tip of your pen? Well, um, what flows off the tip of my pen, um, so to speak, is, is uh, I mean, the only thing I really have to do with these books is I have to pull back on my normal tendency to explain and to write about everything and to describe everything. And because these are not sort of epic fantasies, like other things I've written, um, the scene building is always being done through Bobby's eyes. He's always the guy talking, which I like because it limits the scope of the story in a useful way for me. But I also like because um, then, you know, we're literally following his eyes. And we, we, I don't have to tell the reader everything. I just have to tell the reader what Bobby sees and notices. So, but... In terms of the kind of the nature of the storytelling that Bobby does, that's very much my voice. And in fact, I would say I probably cut out like 40% of the uh, initial uh, <laughs> the jokes, I guess, if you want to call them that. The snark. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, the snark. I, I, I have to trim the snark back and try and find a good balance because... I'm, you know, if you, my family is like so tired of me because I mean that's all I do is just make sarcastic remarks about things all the time. That's just how I am, um, and God bless them. They've learned to put up with it and with only a few groans or, or screams of dismay. But um, you know, with the books, I'm trying to kind of c cut it down a little bit, make it move quickly, give it that kind of noir, fast talking feeling. So even though when somebody is taking a brief. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Detour. To tell it, even when Bobby's taking a little detour to tell you something that's not germane to the exact moment of the pro of the plot, it's still being told to you kind of like like while you're walking together. You know, it has that feeling of you're not sitting down and listening to a long story. You're getting, hey, come on, I'll tell you. I'll tell you while we're walking. And I try to aim all the pros that way. Um, I'm being more limited and a little more, not concise, but a little more hard-edged maybe than I would in my other fiction because I do want it to be a compelling voice. I want people to, to want to keep reading because it feels like it would be not just rude, but, but it'd be rude to walk away from it, but also disappointing because you wouldn't hear the end of all these things he's telling you. you know? And I'm hoping that people are being pulled into that kind of conversational mode and that it doesn't feel like sit back and I will tell you a tale you know and draw the the, the picture of the background and all this stuff but instead I really want to tell it like there's a guy going this crazy stuff happened to me today come here come here let me tell you first this happened then that happened and I swear to god I thought then this happened but it turned out it you know and I just want that feeling so 
that's mainly what it is for me in terms of doing anything different than usual with the prose. I've always been a person who loves language. And as, as you know in your field, uh, well, in several of your fields, and anybody who works in the arts knows, the hardest thing to do well is to make it feel like you haven't worked at something. You know, to either as a, you know, in radio, in reviewing and whatever, um, certainly in writing, is to have people not even notice half the things that are going on because it just feels right. And not noticing the prose too much, you know, maybe just going, oh, I like that or I like that, but not kind of reading it word for word and looking at the word choices, but just that it feels like it just came out. And almost all the best stuff is like that. It just... It feels like it couldn't have been any other way, you know. When you look at a great painting, or you look at a, you know, listen to a great album or something, you know, you're you're not kind of going, oh, I wonder why they chose to play that particular little bass thing there. The first several times you're listening to it, you're just going, how could this be any better, you know? And I'm not saying I'm doing that, but that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get that effect of great ease and naturalness. But for all of us lesser mortals who are not the Beatles or Charles Dickens or whatever, you know, we, we, we work at it. <laughs> you know, we work at it. And I work on making things look effortless. It uh, almost reads like supernatural stand-up. Yeah. I, there's definitely a str- – I mean, there, this is the one thing for people who haven't read these books, and I do tell people this when I give this to them. I say there is a strong – I, don't want, I hate to say comedy because it always sounds like you're pulling it out and, and, and holding it up separately. I mean, it's intrinsic to the story because it's mm-hmm. intrinsic to Bobby's character as it's intrinsic to my character to look at the world that way. But it's very much part of the books. If you want books that, that do not occasionally bring you up short by saying strange, funny, or outrageous things, you're not going to, you know, this is not going to work for you. If your religion is, you, you know, your approach to fiction about religion is ultra, ultra serious, you may not like this. Because it is. It's important to me. I cannot face the world. I cannot face the universe, let alone eternity, without some humor. Religion needs more jokes. Yeah, I agree. Now, I have to ask, uh, in our <clears throat> in, in currently, fantasy is a really hot property. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if your publishers are, are like knocking on your shoulder saying write us some more fantasy like the stuff that's really popular well i think these days especially i think any publisher that didn't do that would be doing themselves a disservice this has always been a case i mean i remember when my wife and i first got together she had been my british publisher Deborah was to begin with, and before we got to know each other personally, and it turned into a you know a love affair, and then a a, a, a wedding, and kids and dogs and a mortgage and all that good stuff. But when I remember one time when I was about to start my Otherland books, which for those who don't know them are a near future science fiction, kind of an epic fantasy set mostly in virtual reality in the nearish future, to make it as simple as possible. And the books I had done before that had been a much more standard epic fantasy, the Memory Sauron Thorn books, the Dragonbone Chair to Green Angel Tower, et cetera. And so I had this idea for this thing I was really excited about, Otherland, which is still one of the strangest and I think most interesting things I've done. And I told Deborah about it. And to her credit, she said, okay, well, I have to wear two hats to, to say this to you. She said, as your um, as your girlfriend or whatever, you know, whatever word she was using about our relationship at the time, as your your significant other, I have to say, you know, 
that sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. Amazing ideas, and I love this, and I can see how excited you are about it. And go for it, honey. As a publisher, she said, I have to say to you, you're going to do a lot better financially if you do the same thing that you just finished doing because that's what everybody loves right now. That's what everybody wants to see more of from you. So you're going to be making a, you know, a specific decision to not take the most financially profitable and probably fame and success-wise most, you know, um, you know, uh, best chance of, you know, really securing your fame um, if you do something quite different. And that's always kind of been what my, my career considerations have been about because I almost never want to do the same thing twice. I can only do something if I find a way into it that feels unique and interesting to me. And I'm almost always looking for a new story or a new idea that makes me excited. And one of the things that makes me excited is novelty. That's, you know, so oftentimes that's what makes me want to make this my next project is that it's literally different from what I did before instead of being like, okay, it's time to crank out another series of so-and-so books. They do call them novels for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And, and I'm not saying that all people who write, you know, long series set in the same world or something are um, somehow lacking in imagination or anything. No, it's just me personally. This is how I roll. So it is always a struggle. My publishers would like to see, you know, all of my publishers, I'm sure, would like to see a very defined brand, especially these days when they like to lead everybody carefully to the right subsection of what books are available and not worry them by making them think about too many other kinds of books, you know. But I'm always, I, I'm somebody who really the only connecting thing between all my works is they're all largely in the sort of general area of science fiction, fantasy, horror, you know. Um, the fantastic and the unusual and unbelievable. But other than that, the only kind of real uniting element is me and my, what interests me and how I look at the world. And it is a bit of a, uh, you take a little bit of a hit for that because, you know, more and more in the world these days, especially with reading, which has no longer become kind of just, you know, the way people live and has become in a lot of cases for people, I think, a very specific form of escapism from stuff like the holiday stress we were talking about earlier. And because as it becomes more of an escapist pastime, you know, then it becomes more important to people that they don't get anything weird or experimental. You know, it's like, <laughs> if I'll tell a very brief story. Classically in our family, my dad never understood dessert, okay? My mom, me, you know, the rest of us, very big on dessert. Dessert was very important to us. My dad's never been a dessert guy. So early on in their relationship, a few times, my mom made the mistake of sending my father out to get ice cream without a specific warrant for what she wanted, you know. And he would come back with these, like, weird experimental things that he would bump across that he thought, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a research chemist, you know. I mean, he just thought they were interesting. It's like, oh, they have this one, and it's got, like, banana and cream cheese. And, and my mother's like... What are you talking about? That's just weird. I've never even heard. Why would you bring me home something I've never had before? And it was this total, you know, uh, separation of two worlds. He was like, well, let's try something interesting, you know. And my mom was like, I wanted mint chip. I didn't want anything else. I wanted mint chip, you know, period. You don't mess with ice cream. And in a sense, I think there's sometimes that's true for books. And, and I'm more like my dad in that way. I'm much more like my mom on the dessert front. 
I'm more like my dad was about dessert as far as books are concerned, whereas I'm much more likely to go, oh, cool, I'd never expected that. I, you know, I haven't even heard of this book, but it sounds interesting, you know. How, where I have a lot of other people, and again, this is not a criticism, this is just a truth. A lot of other people are very much like, I want to sit down with a historical fantasy, or I want to sit down with, you know, a mystery with strong horror overtones, and that's what I like to read when I'm in the reading mood, you know? So shifting what you're doing all the time is a little difficult for some readers because, you know, just when they got, got a tooth for what you were doing, just when they went, ooh, I like this ice cream, then you show, you know, come, you know, hey, guess what? I'm doing chicken fat ripple this month, you know? <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God. So, you know. You have been spending too much time in hell. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, that actually, there's, there's an example of hell is unpalatable ice cream flavors. That would definitely do it for me. Chicken fat ripples. I actually <laughs> stole that one from Mad Magazine from when I was like seven years old. I remember that. They had something like that. They had chicken fat ripple and like lasagna chip or something. It was, they were an example of uneatable ice creams. Um, so credit where credit is due. But uh, yeah, so it, it's it's always a struggle, you know. I, I have to write what excites me because when I do, then people feel that. They feel that I'm really into what I'm writing. Um, but, you know, I, on, at the other hand, I, I, I need readers, <laughs> you know. I, uh, this is a symbiotic relationship. I am not somebody who would write. I mean, I, I, I might write even if I didn't have readers, but I certainly wouldn't be making a living off of it, so I'd be writing a lot less. So, you know, it's, it's always a, an interesting struggle between that what is expected and what people want to see again and again and the writers need to to experiment well i have to say that these books are are so much fun that i think anybody who picks one up no matter what their predilections are will immediately pick up on the fun you're having and you'll get about four pages in and you're just not going to want to stop because it's too much fun i very much hope so and honestly that was the only piece of the only piece of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, of, of really where I, I planned out ahead of time and I tried to maximize, you know, the benefits of it ahead of time. When I thought about these books and whether I'd like to write them as my next set of stuff, um, I did say to myself, well, one good thing is it's the kind of thing that it would be a lot easier to hand people who are interested in my work but haven't read anything of mine before than to hand them the first volume of a three or four volume massive doorstopper of a series in sort of deep epic fantasy land. You know, that's, you know, that's asking somebody to read a million words of epic fantasy who doesn't normally read epic fantasy is, you know, it, it's like, you know, maybe asking you to sit down and watch an entire season's worth of you know, uh, Duck Dynasty or trading spouses or something in one day. You know, it's not necessarily something you do, even if you thought you might like some aspect of it. So, I, you know, one of the things I thought about with these books is like, well, it's got this noir thing. It's fast moving. It's only got one narrator. So it's not, you don't have quite as many things to keep track of because obviously there's only so much the narrator can tell you. So mm, maybe these would be good books for people to pick up for the first time who've never read stuff by me so far. So that's kind of one of the things I hoped. Well, I'm hoping that uh, this will become the fantasy or the 
Tad Williams equivalent of the 87th Precinct Mysteries, and that it will have a long and very happy life for both the writer and the readers. I, the, the last thing I will say is my ideal world of the future for, for me and my writing is that uh, is that I get to continue writing the Bobby Dollar books regularly, but then we'll also do other kinds of projects as well. So, because I know my other readers do like multi-volume fantasies and things like that, but my, my ideal world, I will be doing both at the same time. I've been speaking with Tad Williams. His newest novel is Happy Hour in Hell. Thanks for joining me, Tad. It's always a pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.